Listen. Learn. Connect. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. When one thinks of ongoing armed conflict, we can only imagine the complex components which allows these wars to continue. Much focus is naturally placed on the violence and body counts, especially by the media. But how often is the theoretical approach of the politics of identity and the politics of belonging considered in trying to reach sustainable solutions sooner? And how can we learn from this? And how can policymakers apply this going forward? To help us answer those questions, especially about the politics of belonging, specifically related to the conflict in South and North Kivu in the DRC, is Dr. Jacob Kluter, who recently obtained his PhD in political studies from UW with his dissertation entitled The Politics of Belonging and the Contest for Survival. He joins us now in studio. A very big welcome to you, uh, Dr. Jacob Kluter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mpo. And, uh, you know, your dissertation, uh, it's uh, quite fascinating. It extensively explores and examines the politics of belonging with regards to the ongoing conflict in North and South Kivu in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. So what inspired this as the chosen thesis? And did you always possess a passion for politics? So I, I don't know how long I have um, to answer this question, but to be brief, uh I was deployed in, 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 in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in 2004 until April uh, 2005. And during that time, um, I was a peacekeeper part of the SANDF. So the one thing, if, if you didn't travel outside of South Africa and, and, and you go to parts of Africa, then it's quite, it's, it's quite new to you. So the one thing that struck me coming from South Africa is that the, the, the kind of hopelessness that I felt of the people in, 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 in that particular region. So the conflict really messed a kind of mess with my, with my thinking. And, and in South Africa, we struggle with poverty, but the levels of violence and destitute that I saw there is the kind of things that, that stayed with me. So when I finally had to do my PhD, the one thing then that me and my supervisor got to is, um, apart from the South African kind of research interest, is there anything else on the African continent that that, that you would like to ask me. So I said to him, okay, let's do the conflict in the DRC because to me at that particular moment, the violence saw, I saw it as senseless. Why would people kill each other in this particular way? So for me, it was kind of to get to an answer to a question that I had a long time ago. And, you know, it's uh, it's one of the questions that we should be asking because I actually even uh, recall that there was an article, an opinion piece penned by the Mail and Guardian some time back, and they referred to this war as the Forgotten War because usually when you think of ongoing uh, unrest, you think of Afghanistan, you think of Syria. So do you certainly agree that this is uh, the Forgotten War? Definitely. Um, I think uh, there is various statistics, it's, but there's two trouble two Tabling the statistics that is out there. So the one, the one estimate saying that since 1997, 1996 since the conflict, um, break out up until I think it was 2012, 5.3 million people died in the conflict. So the other estimate says that that statistical analysis is wrong. It's 2.8 million. Now both of these incidences, the death toll is in the millions. So you find that some scholars is arguing over the statistical analysis, but the one point that they're missing is that millions of people died in this conflict. Some of them is direct, meaning is direct by the ongoing conflict, and some of them is indirect, meaning is that it is the infrastructure, like dying of cholera, um, 
all of other related issues. So so that's how they how they calculate it. But the the issue is millions of people died in that conflict. And it is forgotten. And the reason why it's forgotten is because uh, the DRC is mainly a French country. So what we might not get, especially who speak English and who's kind of an Anglophone country, is that we don't get the, the, the news reports that is in the French media. So one of so one of the reasons why and, and one of the reasons why I'm here, what I want to speak about it is to kind of bring it into the kind of English mainstream so that we can start speaking about the conflict because there's volumes been written on a conflict in in Francophone countries but not in Anglophone countries. So does the, so there is a number of of, of, of of pioneering research in 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 English but there's more been done in, in in kind of 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 of, of French, so in 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 French circles is big, Francophone countries, but not in 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 ours. So it's forgotten in the English media, but I don't think it's forgotten in in French media. And you know, uh, speaking of which, I mean, um, the, the 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 Franco the Francophone Franco uh, just uh, file having that sort of ex- uh, the the influence of that, and you know, bringing colonialism into this. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I certainly found quite interesting is that, um, you know, I think that the focus of why this war is happening has been probably uh, a completely misguided one because, I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's uh, the the colonial um, invasions that have also just had a hand in uh, molding the uh, different uh, ethnic groups now. And also they're the ones that actually decided actually who would be considered indigenous and who is considered uh, not part of uh, being part of the, the DRC. So uh, what what are your, your thoughts on that? And uh, with regards to how it's also just either uh, compromised or taken the narrative in a whole completely different direction the one thing if you look at the african continent and this is this this is the big thing that a lot of us miss is that the borders when you study that there's straight lines on the african on the african map there's straight lines now that map that that lines on on that map is a result of the the berlin conference of 1884-1885 so that particular conference led to event which people call the scramble for Africa. So the aim of that uh, that one was to d- determine the borders of the Congo Free State. So King Lo- uh, Leopold was the Belgian monarch that acquired a whole the, what what we call now the DRC as his own, and it's called um, it was called the Congo Free State, and later it was Belgium Congo. But and and the first kind of genocide was recorded in the Congo Free State. Where millions of people died, but that's also another part that that a lot of people doesn't speak about. So, to answer your question, is that the the colonialism, the big the big legacy of colonialism is those lines on the African map, because if you look at the conflict in in the DRC, especially the eastern part of the DRC, where we find Rwanda and Burundi, and the DRC is drawing a line right through established communities, almost like. Uh, in South Africa, when, with Zimbabwe in, 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 in South Africa, is that there's existing communities. So when you draw a line and you say that this is now South African and you guys, that side is Zimbabwe, then what needs to happen is two different types of identity that is formed. The one is a Zimbabwean identity, which is completely new because we have never seen ourselves as, uh, as Zimbabwean and, and in South Africa. Now suddenly we need to have a South African identity. Now the same thing happened in, in the DRC. Is that 
people on both sides had to, apart from the ethnic identities that they have, they also had to get national identities. And colonialism gave more rights and privileges within citizenship. So meaning is that you can access certain things when you from the DRC or you when you're Rwandan or you when you are from Burundi. And that's the legacy that most of of, of the states post uh, post uh, post colonial Africa is kind of, of of struggling with is apart from the, the the ethnic identities also these national identities but across the border is family of mine. Once we used to be part of the same community but suddenly we different um, nationalities. And you know I, I think I find that so tragic because also at the end of the day I mean with uh, describing the fact that there have been intentional divisions with uh, within uh, these communities and also that maybe certain indigenous groups are given prestige and power over others and also I mean what what I find um, even sadder is that because it's an ongoing war um, it's it's even more challenging for uh, the narrative to be completely owned by the original inhabitants so you know, I think that's that's certainly something that uh, that always needs to be ob- observed and never forgotten. So, yeah. the interesting part is is a, the idea of the original inhabitant. So, currently, um, in the end of my dissertation, I had to come to the conclusion that there is a, con- a contested history in that part of Africa, where some people see themselves as the original inhabitant and then say, uh, "Those of you." The other is not the original inhabitant. And then the other say, but we are the original inhab- inhabitants and you are not the in, 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 in original inhabitants. For, for example, a lot of people know about uh, the 1994 Rwandan genocide. In the 1994 Rwandan genocide, the Tutsi was killed. Um, millions of Tutsi was killed. Or not millions, it's about 600,000 Tutsi was killed and 200,000 Hutu were killed in, 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 in Rwandan genocide. But the reason why the Tutsi was killed is because colonial narratives said that they are foreigners coming from somewhere from the Horn of Africa that took over the, 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 the Bantu's place, which was the Hutu. Yes. But after 1994, when the Tutsi came, kind of got back into power, the narrative changed, is saying is that the Bantu came from West Africa, that is also uh, a migrant to the particular area. So this area, we were there before the, the, the Bantus. So we are the original inhabitants. So the idea of the original inhabitant is one of the most pro- problematic discourses. And that is kind of at the basis or the foundation of these conflicts. Because then it kind of creates a belonging that I am the original inhabitant so I can claim place to this particular one. So it's who's in, who's in control of the state can deti- determine the narrative of the original inhabitant. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, um, I mean, considering the nature of this, this is, it's never ending and it's ongoing and it's, it's, um, it's highly unlikely, I mean, at the moment that there will be some sort of conclusion, con- uh, conclusion reached to favor all parties involved. And, you know, speaking of, of which, um, 
Well, you know, with regards to what we were discussing and also uh, with your thesis. So uh, the write-up that was actually penned by uh, UWC Humanities Faculty celebrating your doctorate uh, states that your thesis argues that the conflict should not be observed as singular, but rather as multiple, not as national, but uh, regional, and most centrally uh, not as a resource-driven, but shaped by the reproduction of cultural identity. So could you kind of elaborate a bit more on that? Could you kindly just expand on, on that? So this is for people who is very familiar on the conflict, the terminology that they use. But I encourage people to actually go into go online and Google the conflict. So the issue when it comes to cultural identities is between the Banya Malenge and the Banya Rwanda. So the Banya Rwanda means, if you break down the word, those from Rwanda. And the Banya Malenge says those from Mulenge. So the ones from Mulenge is a village within the DRC. Now those those people originally was considered the the Banyamulenge is originally considered migrants from Rwanda. The Banyarwanda is mostly Hutu or is perceived mostly Hutu that came there during colonial times. And that's why they called Banyarwanda. So it means those from Rwanda. But the Banyamulenge, who was mainly Tutsi changed the narrative because at one point they were also referred to by Congolese as the Banyarwanda. So they said, okay, but we are not from Rwanda. We are from Mulenge. And that's why they say Banya, it means from Mulenge. So we are from the uh, from the area around Mulenge. And this is the contested narrative. So mostly when people read the conflict, you come across the Banyarwanda and the Banyamulenge. But what a lot of people forget is about the Congolese that was with them during that particular time. So that's where you will find the Nande and you will find the Hunde. Those are groups in the Nyanga. They were there with the Banyarwanda and sometimes before the Banyarwanda and the Banyamulenge. And this is where the, the, the narrative of the original inhabitant becomes the problematic one because someone has to leave. And, you know, it's interesting as you are unpacking this, uh, especially the, the history so that our listeners can have more of an understanding. Also, you know, I feel that, um, especially, you know, considering which leader comes into power, which party comes into power and what their agenda is, I feel that, uh, with regards to the, the contestation for this, the politics of belonging, that they also, in a way, are using this as fuel to keep that division in order to, uh, keep, uh, their, their powers, their, just their, their, their power over that specific region. I mean, uh, would you agree with that? So, to a certain extent, yeah. because within the, uh, whoever is in power, so there's there's multiple layers of it. So you have at the local level where there's a strong sense of that belong to this particular area, but from that you need to get kind of elected at the local level, at the provincial level, and at the national level. So some of these elites, and this is where the contest of survival comes in, they use these particular original narratives or these issues as a way of getting re-elected by pushing the other one out. So if you're in power, then you say, okay, is that I'm giving the people who elected me the resources and neglect the other group. So then the other group say, but we are neglected from this. So they contested for power up either in the municipal or in the provincial or at the national level. Mm -hmm. So if you get at the national level, then your group's agenda and you get the resources. Now, 
in the DRC's case, it's two things that is really con- where, where, where people benefit is from agriculture, so that's farming, right, and mining. So the 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 citizenship in land is linked in the eastern part of the DRC. So there's various X. So if you're a citizen, you can you can get land. If you're not a citizenship a citizen, then you cannot get land. So at at the heart of this is that the people who gets elected start manipulating local narratives and histories mm-hmm. so that they get in power. So then it becomes this contest of survival between these groups because who's ever in power is going to give kind of resources and 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 and, and land to the group that elected them into into space. And if that doesn't work, then it's an armed conflict. That's the other thing as well. I mean, there, there's so many facets to consider, but I think, um, you know, because, I mean, we always just look at it, I think, especially with especially with how it's uh, portrayed um, in the media, it's always from uh, a standpoint of violence and not actually getting to the heart of the matter when it comes to uh, the ethnicity, the politics of belonging, and also... When it comes to finding a, a uh, just a cohesive solution, but you know, as long as there's always that constant fight for mineral resources, uh, for land, uh, it's actually going to be much more challenging to to reach that conclusion. And you know, uh, when it came to this, I mean, with with what we've been discussing now, um, the other points I would also like to touch on, especially with the preparation of your thesis. So, where did you actually uh, where did you actually begin with this, and what were the challenges when it came to research, and how did you tackle those? So, the idea of that this is a conflict with regards to belonging is after I read um, several articles on the conflict, but I came across um, more and more literature on Rwanda. So as I came across the literature of, of, of Rwanda, especially in 1994, when Tutsi leads took over power in, in Rwanda, the Banyo Malenge didn't leave the DRC. There is a group of Tutsi that leave the DRC, and they were the recent migrants because of conflicts, earlier conflicts. So the conflict in that region started early in the independence. So it started in, it first started in Burundi, then it started in, no, it first started in Rwanda in 1959, and then it started in Burundi. So they, you have, in Burundi, the, the Hutu was in power. So, no, in Burundi, the Tutsi was in power. So they pushed out the, the, the Hutu. In Rwanda, the, the Hutu was in power and they they pushed out the Tutsi. So, when the Tutsi got in power in Rwanda, a lot of the Tutsi of, the, of that particular group went back to, to Rwanda, but the Banyumalengi stayed. Those people that was in the DRC at the particular time of King Lo- Leopold when they draw the, 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 the thing is like, we are from Mulenge, and they also see themselves as Tutsi, so they see themselves as Mulenge, DRC, they also see themselves as Tutsi, but they didn't leave. And this is the question is that came to me is why didn't they leave? So then I realized for them it's an issue of belonging, but we belong here as much as any other group that was here during that particular time. So then I said this must be a politics of, of belonging. So from then onwards I started tackling it like that. So I started looking, is it other people who wrote on it? And I found there was a number of people who wrote on it, but there was no theoretical explanation of it. And, and this is what my dissertation does differently. I kind of 
extend it to a theoretical explanation, which you can kind of universally apply. So if you look at uh, xenophobia in South Africa, it's a politics of belonging. If you like, look at the, 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 the refugee crisis in, 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 in Europe, it's a politics of belonging. Brexit and even the issue of crime and anti-migrants and all of this is politics of belonging. Because what I try to do in my research, uh, 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 especially in my, my dissertation, is to kind of look at the politics of belonging. Can we universally apply this to many other conflicts? And this is the, is, this is the contribution that my dissertation makes. You can use that as a theoretical back, uh, backdrop to read other conflicts in a similar way. And speaking of uh, reading other conflicts, I do want to delve more into a little bit more into uh, xenophobia, Brexit, and also Trump's immigration policy, respectively. I'd just like to just uh, welcome our weekend early listeners. This is uh, Cape Talk, and uh, welcome to the show if you've just joined us. And I'm having a very, very... Um, uh, interesting conversation, actually quite informative, educational. Uh, it's with regards to the ongoing conflicts in uh, the South and North Kivu uh, in DRC. And I'm speaking to Jacob Kluter. Actually, let me give you the proper salutation. Dr. Jacob Kluter, who recently obtained his PhD in political studies from the University of Western Cape. And it is titled The Politics of Belonging and a Contest for Survival, Rethinking the Conflict in North and South Kivu in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And also, um, I understand that uh, you're also a uh, a man of uh, many hats as well. Um, you know, you not only have done this, you also produced and directed a documentary called Bitter Suit, and also you are the producer of uh, two uh, a web two web series uh, on YouTube and uh, a hip hop themed one as well as a politically themed one. But before I even get to the other hats that you wear, um, I would like to ask you more about uh, the question when it comes to uh, applying this theoretical approach, uh, especially when it comes to xenophobia. I mean, I actually I was just kind of recapping of. of of, um, I was just kind of recapping and watching some uh, video footage on YouTube uh, of how this has been a 10-year conflict and struggle and also where you've got the opposing uh, opinions and voices. I mean, Goodwill... Um, Goodall's relative actually he had also had made a, a, a quite a, a disturbing statement uh, telling uh, foreign nationals that they need to find their place back home and then also you have, you know... Um, we also have the EFF who have their opposing view on that who are talking about how they have actually, uh, you know, they, they are just trying to create opportunities from themselves coming from war-torn regions and, uh, you know, I just uh, within the 10 years of um, you know, of, of xenophobia unfolding and unfortunately still ongoing uh, how do you apply this theoretical approach and also um, with using this to uh, internationally apply this to Brexit and Trump's uh, immigration sentiments, uh, what are your views on that? If you can expand on. So the 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 one thing um, that I take is to kind of get into the to to the psyche of the individual, the actor. So so the person who commit the atrocious act of either violently assault someone or kill someone. What happens in that person's mind? So, the politics of belonging is the title of my research. But there's a preceding, before I even wrote a chapter called the politics of belonging, I first look at the politics of becoming. Because there's a politics of becoming before you can belong. Identity, absolutely, there we go, yes. So, 
so the issue was is how do we become these political identities that we so strongly believe in so the most of the theoretical work of yeah a, a great extent of the theoretical work went into the becoming and and what i find is that it's multi one's identity is multidimensional and you're not one you're not you are one you're not one constant identity meaning for me a lot of people will look at me and say that you are male but in my psyche i'm not male con- continuously at some point i am either south african or i can even have a udaps identity so these identities is 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 multidimensional and what we do is we negotiate these identities in in various ways now to get to that politics where goodwill swantini say look that the foreigners needs to go there needs to be a foreigner who is the foreigner so what 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 my work then does is start looking at specific features when it comes to belonging and those particular features have features have markers it 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 and and these markers what does a foreigner look like in terms of that psyche of that individual so once you can identify the, uh, the, the 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 foreigner then you can other the foreigner it's not mine Mm-hmm. So the foreigner is always a threat that comes to take. Yes. So if, if I feel threatened, mm. then violence is permitted in my psyche. Then I can really push you out because I'm a threat. So that is the theoretical work or in 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 my thesis that that's the extension that that's the kind of approach that I'm that I'm working with. So then you can apply it to trans Trump really see the other this this violent uh, migrants that is coming from from Mexico or in in even in Brexit there's immigrants from from Europe but all the other parts of the world that come and take us so th- the othering the foreigner needs to, it creates you create it in the psyche and that kind of justify the violence later on that you then are going to do but I'd say it's quite a, a, a damaging, ignorant and misinformed uh, psyche to adopt because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, they take on majority of the blame when it comes to lack of employment, uh, when it comes to even um, inciting violence, which uh, we I mean, we know for the most part is, uh, you know, not not necessarily true. I mean, they are. They are relocating in order to create a new and better lives for themselves. So it's about um I mean, I love how you just hit the nail on the head. It's about uh, a justification of of violence, and uh, and to actually just keep on continue it, continuing um, violence and perpetuating that cycle, which I I find uh, rather disturbing. And uh, you know, speaking of which, uh, you know, the policymakers, you know, after they read your your dissertation, um, how can they actually how can they benefit from the insights that you provide, especially with regards to, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, I know we also have to be realistic as well because of the um, um, the, the 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 complexities involved in with regards to um, ending any sort of conflict. How how would this be beneficial to reshaping, uh, reaching a conclusion? So, in terms of of, of 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 policy work, policy work needs to be needs to or the policy change need to happen in the ideological sense. So if we look at our constitution, even if we look at the Citizenship Act in South Africa, it needs to kind of have a ideological reorientation. 
is only once you have ideological reorientation that the state can kind of facilitate a different type of identity or this different type of becoming this particular person or this nationality that you are. So the EFF would say, Goodwin Swalatini, please hold on. Because these are people who read the work of Sobukwe. Which is a kind of ideological approach of seeing the African without these borders that colonialism brought. But once you have that ideological approach, then you have to start adjusting your policies accordingly. But then it goes also towards a reorientation of the psyche of the person. Because you don't overnight going to change in someone who's going to be now suddenly friendly towards foreigners come in. So then there needs to be slowly kind of awareness and things that is taking place. So this particular approach that I'm saying is not going to be an overnight solution. This is a long-term solution. But what I'm trying to work with or what I'm working or what I agree with is Julius Nyerere. With the, with the inception of, 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 of Tanzania, what become Tanzania is a kind of reorientation, a reorientation of this colonial subject or this post-apartheid subject or this person into one that is more open to, to foreigners or people coming from, from other parts of, of the continent. But it starts with a, a different ideological approach that the currently, current policies have. But the current ideological Approaches in our policy benefit them. A, a ideological shift. The elites is never going to benefit from an ideological shift because the ideological, sh- the current ideological um, position is what make them elites. So, so that that's the kind of bottom line is that everything is at stake for for King Goodwill Swellentini because this current policy gives him a kind of stipend every month from the state and tax. A reorientation might just take that away. And it's it's quite alarming actually, you know, with uh, those who are in power, how these constant rifts, I mean, you always have to consider how this benefits them in the long run, having these rifts, having these divisions and, and ongoing conflicts. And I do have, uh, I will have one uh, another question to ask, uh, you know, with regards to our, our listeners as well. Um, and what they can walk away with But uh, just to touch on some of the work that you've done as well um, I actually had the pleasure yesterday of uh, viewing uh, Bittersuit And I must say it warms my heart to also uh, to have such a a, a, wonderf- uh, a wonderful and, and, and vibrant community That just, um, I just, I love how they have a, a, just a strong sense uh, of the human spirit And also uh, being a small town, I'm a small town girl myself So I could resonate with that and you know the just the whole sense of community so could could you tell us about um your approach to just producing and creating this documentary and uh, also just the the types of techniques that you employed whilst filming this so but this is about me so the people that you see there is this is a part of me that that for, for many years that i had to confront and in this form i'm trying to confront it and the one of the 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 the, the the final realizations when I look at this form is like, but this form is about me. Even though I'm not visually present in the form, right. but this form is about me. 
But it's also another way of thinking the post-apartheid. I personally believe that we didn't arrive at a post-apartheid yet. However, there is opportunities within marginalized communities outside the dominant kind of, of way of thinking the South African society. There is other ways of thinking these particular societies or, or, or South Africa. And Batasut is an attempt on that. Is how does rural people think? How do they live on a daily basis? Because when we think about the rural person, we always think it as someone that needs to be pity, that is backward, that doesn't have anything. That you from the outside have to come and rescue them, or they doesn't have. And 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 what this and what this form does is to show that there's a lot of agency. There's a lot of they are they are proud. They are proud of who they are, and and they don't ask any anyone for something because they are them unapologetically and that is what I try to do with Batasud is that you cannot change their reality whether you want it or not mm. whether you feel pity for them they don't they unapologetically are proud who they are and I must say um, uh, that's exactly what I, I took away from it after I had watched that and uh, I must say I was so I was very pleasantly um Entertained, especially by uh, the dance, the dancing as well, and that just, just that, that uh, I just love how they they also try and immerse, immerse the youth into that, just that culture as well, uh, just uh, having a strong sense of pride of where they're from. So that's what I also particularly uh, just just loved about that as well. And it's it's a community that works together, close knit, uh, very neighborly, and yes, having having that pride of of knowing of knowing where you are from and how important it is in shaping your identity. I just want to say um, something about dance. So, Batasud is, 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 is about the real dance. Yes. But the real dance is one of those marginalized dances within South African culture. So, but within the real dance, I've discovered this a whole history. It's an archive of stories. So, there's different regions that will use this dance to tell their stories. In Batafontein, where this form is, that is their way of telling their story. So all of the symbolism and all of the things that they show in this dance is happening. It's their archive. So even during apartheid, when this dance was considered backward, these communities use this dance to archive their stories. And now they have opportunity to kind of tell this particular story of them. And they can tell it unap- unapologetically. So... There's other ways, and, and this, this is what I'm trying to say, is that if we go into these communities, we must not go as saviors. When we go into rural communities, when we go into, I hate this word, townships, I don't, I, it's, it's a creation, I, yeah, I hate I, it. I, I, I'm there with you, that's, yes. But if we go into these spaces, we must not go as saviors. We must go as people to go and learn. Because once you learn, I go when I normally make a form I, I tell people is that I'm here to learn I'm here to learn about your experience and how you see this I am no expert so once you open yourself to learning then the experience is so much so much more that you can get you, you gain so much more from learning and it's, it, I think it's, it's so much more enriching as well because, I mean, especially now that, now that you're talking about that and, um, having that, uh, you know, it's, it's also, and I know sometimes people, uh, try and, you know, um, visit certain communities with the well, with, uh, with that intention of, you know, um, 
wanting to bring more and invest more into it but uh, also having that uh, savior complex as well could be quite damaging and also it's it's um i think people who especially people um who are proud of their community such as in bitterstreet may even find that offensive because it could also uh, unintentionally create some form of othering by you as a visitor having this savior complex and now you're not there to learn and to to understand um the culture to understand uh you know the history of 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 this town the people and the, the sense of pride that they carry on a daily basis in the different spaces that they occupy within this town it's almost like it's a self-serving agenda in a sense so i i, I certainly agree with what she said but after watching um but this would and you see how um hendrik no, yes. no negotiate then the question would be is um who am i what do i do where do where do I fit? Because this particular person is a normal person. But if you go and you see him, Hendrik, and you see him with pity, then you will m- miss a, the complete story of him. He is really able in doing all of the things. I don't want to give a lot of a lot away. Yes, yeah, of course. Please, yeah, do watch it. We know no spoiler alerts here. I know I also get carried away, so I'll just I'll end off that question, <laughs> that that answer by saying please do have a uh, a look at it on on YouTube. It is available and it is called Bitter Suit. Um, I, I promise you, you will thoroughly enjoy this immensely as well. You'll learn so much more about the people from this wonderful town. And uh, I do have to round off the conversation. It has been incredibly educational and and fascinating. The, your findings and also your uh, theory and unique approaches to um, just analyzing conflict and also uh, the resolutions that can um that that can actually be reached after you know observing observing this with your um, approach. Uh, how what I'm, I'm just uh, rounding off with this uh, question. Uh, what would you want our listeners to walk away with, and where can they actually find your dissertation? Uh, before I get into the dissertation, um, I want our listeners to know about that all of us contribute to the conflict in the DRC. There is rare mar- minerals that is taking place that that is mined illegally in that part of, of, of the world. So every time you buy a smartphone, then you contribute to the conflict. So all of us, we have smartphones, have blood in our hands. I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it. Because the minerals that we use in our smartphones is cassettrite and cobalt. 80% of the world's minerals of, of, of the smartphone production, those minerals come from the DRC and it's in a conflict area. In most of those cases, children is being forcefully used to mine those with no wages. So it's literally slave labor. So if you have one phone, it's fine. But if you have three or four of these phones, start thinking about if you buy every time Apple or some of this, then more and more cassetterite needs to. Now, the thing is, the smartphones are coming cheaper because the labor is cheaper. Because the cassetterite is actually really expensive material. So if, if, if the smartphone is cheaper, then you get the minerals cheaper, meaning there is no labor cost on this. So we need to think twice. So we all contribute to the conflict in the DRC because of the mineral that is mined in this particular area. So that's the one thing that I want people, to, what I want to, the listeners to leave with is that we are not innocent. So after listening, hearing me, you cannot be ignorant. Those people who have n- never exactly. <laughs> heard of it, they yes. can be, they can be ignorant. So that's the one thing that I would 
like to leave listeners with. The, my my dissertation will only be available next year because I'm currently working that into a book. Oh, so I'm back with it because intellectual property is important for me. So the UWC has copyright to the thesis, but they doesn't have con- they don't doesn't have rights over my intellectual property. So I embargoed my thesis, thesis, so I want to. But if if you really want it, I'll send you uh, uh, a copy of it. Okay, fantastic. And I'm I'm also open to come and speak to schools, whoever wants to know about the contract, because uh, more and more kids are buying these phones, and I think they also need to know the story because real societal change happen with kids. Especially school. Absolutely, it happens with uh, with uh, children. They are our future, of course. And uh, also, you know, um, now that you mentioned this, that you will be uh, giving talks as well. Where can they find your contact details? How can our listeners? So I'm I'm on on, on I'm on all social media platforms. So on, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook, I'm Jacob Kluter. You can just get me, or even if you Google Jacob Kluter, uh, something will pop up. Absolutely. And, you know, I must say, um, absolutely. It's been such a pleasure. And I, I, and I'm also just more informed on the, the conflict and also just the, um, the, the different and unique approaches that you highlight and you illuminate in your, uh, dissertation. And I also want to wish you all the best with, um, your future endeavors, especially with, with the book and also, uh, just having to deal with all of the, the admin. We can understand like, uh, what a process it can be. But uh, I look forward to seeing it in hard copy and uh, looking forward to more of your insights. And please do come back to the show. We'd love to hear more about the workshops you may host in the future, especially for the children, for children as well at schools and any of your other um, future endeavors. And please uh, do remember that uh, you can also be sure to um, watch Bittersuit on YouTube and also um he, and also Jacob is a vlogger as well. You can also be sure to uh, watch The State, which focuses on polit- politics and current affairs. And if you are a fan of hip-hop, there's a hip-hop culture vlog as well called Voices of the South. So please do check that out. And on that note, I'm very humbled and honored to have had this conversation with you. Thank you so much, uh, Jacob. Dr. Kluter, we welcome you back to Cape Talk in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul.